figured he'd work his way up here. I'm kind of scared, but you can only be scared for so long. I've been raped before, I've been choked, and had a gun and a knife pulled on me. I know how to handle the victims as prostitutes or drug users. The attacks have taken place in abandoned homes and vacant lots. You're just so scared all the time, but you have to survive. It's bad enough the things that you have to do while you're out here. Then you have this going on. It's even worse. It is important that they contact us immediately. So any forensic evidence that we can recover, we can recover any additional information. Every neighborhood has a bad side, and this neighborhood has a really bad side. On December 9th in 2010, a headline in the Philadelphia Daily News read, For hookers, fear of attack is a constant companion. Hookers. Not women, not sex workers, but hookers. If you read the article, you found a thoughtful, concerned tone, a meaningful story about women who were sex workers, the struggles they faced trying to support their families, their habit, and often both, almost always trying to feed their addictions. But this headline reduced them to nothing more than their jobs something I doubt would have happened if they were administrative assistants, retail associates, or corporate executives. These women worked the Stroll, a section of Kensington Avenue under the L train near one of the worst areas of North Philadelphia, and they were being hunted. By the time that article was published, two women were murdered. They were raped, strangled, and left alone in trash-ridden vacant lots. Someone preyed on the women who worked the Stroll. Residents of Kensington were afraid. They feared for their wives and daughters, their mothers. It's a tough, working-class neighborhood. Some families have lived there for generations. Many of the families in Kensington are the sort of people who look out for one another. Except for the women who worked the stroll. No one looked out for them. But someone was watching them. Watching and waiting to choose his next victim. I'm Dina Marie your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Philly. Philly. The Kensington section of Philadelphia was founded almost 290 years ago. They'll celebrate a tricentennial in 2030, which sounds insane that we would celebrate a tricentennial. And it feels weird to talk about history in Kensington because one of the worst drug areas in the city of Philadelphia is in Kensington. We've talked about Kensington before. In episode 35, Twisted Sight, I was joined by Allie, the co-host of the Insight podcast, and I told her the story of Jason Sweeney, who was murdered by his childhood best friend and a few other classmates. His girlfriend set him up so his friends could take his paycheck. Jason lived in an area of Philadelphia called Fishtown, which, depending on with whom you speak, is part of Kensington or it borders Kensington. It used to be called Kensington a few hundred years ago. Kensington sits in North Philly, or slightly adjacent to North Philly, and I say in or adjacent because the thing about North Philly neighborhoods is people's opinion differ on which neighborhoods truly fall within the borders of North Philadelphia. Yeah, we argue about neighborhoods sometimes. 
In the 50s, Kensington experienced significant job loss. Some neighborhoods suffered from white flight, and as the years passed, those abandoned houses that never sold became the perfect spots for drug homes, squatters, and higher crime rates. Dolores Della Pena was murdered in a warehouse in Kensington. Damn near every week on Philly News, you will hear two dead in Kensington, or so-and-so was a victim of a drive-by shooting in Kensington. A corner store was robbed in Kensington. Kensington isn't the only neighborhood in Philadelphia where you hear reports like that on a regular basis, but it is one of the more frequent neighborhoods. And truly, it's a shame. There are historic landmarks in Kensington, just like any other part of the city. It's filled with hardworking people trying to make a life for themselves and their families, people who want to protect their neighborhoods and see it become a thriving part of the city again. And by thriving, I don't mean gentrified which seems like the only way the more depressed sections of Philadelphia get a shot in the arm. Gentrification brings in craft breweries and gastropubs, art galleries, and places where you can paint a sunset while drinking a glass of Malbec. And all of that is lovely, but I don't think it actually helps the people who live there, who have lived there most of their lives. It doesn't always improve job opportunities because a lot of these places aren't hiring locals. It means more people from other sections of the city walk around saying, oh, have you tried the new brew house on Frankfurt Avenue? It's really fantastic. They come out, they drop their cash in a restaurant, and then they roll. And for people who are moving into Kensington, they're living in older buildings that have been completely refurbished, which are gorgeous. But there are entire neighborhoods that need help. And none of those residents who have lived there for ages could even afford to live in the rehabbed properties. So I don't see how any of that really helps the community. If you do, please reach out to me and help me understand that. For this story, we're going back about eight years to a cold night in November in 2010. It wasn't that bad during the day. We still had a few days that got close to 60. You'd feel a little bit of summer lingering through the fall, but at night, you absolutely felt winter coming. That night, it was just a few degrees above freezing. And I'm taking you to a place called The Stroll. The Stroll is a stretch of Kensington Avenue, where most of the sex workers try to get dates, make money, then they walk a few more blocks to the corner of Kensington and Somerset, where it was practically an open-air market of drugs. That corner was often referred to as a bazaar, but instead of buying discounted knickknacks or homemade crafts and toys and clothes, the merchandise was drugs. It was heroin more than anything, although it wasn't always heroin. The K&A Gang, which stands for Kensington and Allegheny, an intersection in Kensington, were running meth through that part of the city in the 80s and 90s. The drug scene in Kensington had been bad for decades. In 1983, Philadelphia was called the meth capital of the world. Isn't that nice? But that's a story for another day. In 2010, for a while before and, and certainly since then, Kensington Avenue was rife with heroin dealers and people looking to score. Imagine you live a few blocks from this. The crime spills over onto your street, sometimes into your backyard where you might have a tiny swing set for your kids to enjoy after school. You go outside in the morning to grab the Inquirer if you're still getting home delivery like me, at least on Sundays, and there are syringes on your lawn. That's what life is like in some sections of Philadelphia. It isn't all City Hall and fancy stories about history and ghosts or Christmas lights at Macy's. On Wednesday, November 3rd, 2010, 
The body of a young woman was found not far from the Kensington Avenue stroll in a vacant lot on Ruth Street. Ruth Street runs parallel to Kensington, just a block over and a few blocks away from the heaviest drug dealing on Somerset Street. You got people that came down here a year, two years ago, ain't never been home. Ain't never been home. Got off that L and went and copped something and never been home since. Just stayed staying down here following the drug, you know, and chasing it, chasing it, chasing it. And every day they stay outside, get up in the morning, hustle, and do the same thing over and over. You got people down here that's been down here on Kensington and Somerset for years. Where is your family? It's not an area where it would be uncommon to find a body. The lot where the young woman was found had a path that had been trampled through near waist-high weeds and grass. This path was used by addicts to get off the street and away from prying eyes. And it was often used by Kensington sex workers for walking dates. Okay, so what's a walking date? A guy approaches a woman, he's not in a car, and neither one of them has money for a room. So they take a walk until they find a secluded place, not too far from the stroll, but out of the way enough so they had a little bit of privacy. They work out the particulars during the walk, and eventually they find a spot that fits their needs. The lot on Ruth Street was a frequent spot for these sorts of walking dates. People would use the path cut through the weeds, stepping over broken glass, trash of all sorts, the remains of people living in the lot, duck behind the weeds, and do what they were there to do. Initially, police thought the woman they found may have been an addict who overdosed after scoring heroin a few blocks away. But soon they realized it was something else entirely. Although it took an autopsy to confirm their suspicions, police believed the young woman was murdered. She appeared to have been strangled and sexually assaulted. She was naked from the waist down. Three days earlier, on October 30th, 21-year-old Elaine Goldberg told her family she was going out. Elaine was a nursing student. She and her family were so excited for her because this was her second time going to nursing school. She was barely 21. She just celebrated her birthday a few weeks earlier, and Elaine struggled with drug addiction. It got so bad the year before, she dropped out of nursing school. Her boyfriend made her move out of his house because he couldn't take the vicious cycle of Elaine getting clean and then getting high again. A few months before her birthday, her father, Joe Goldberg, got her into rehab, and it seemed as if Elaine was on the track towards sobriety. She re-enrolled in the School of Nursing at Gwynedd Mercy College in Montgomery County. Elaine wanted to be a nurse since her grandmother passed away when she was only about 13. The last few years of her grandmother's life were spent in nursing facilities, and through watching this experience, plus her mother's departure from the family at a very young age, Elaine developed a desire to care for others. In October 2010, Elaine was living at her childhood home with her father and her sister, Corrine. On the 27th, she'd even posted about her sobriety on Facebook. 30 days clean today, holla! Her younger sister, her father, her friends from high school, everyone was so optimistic about her future. A few days before Halloween, Elaine Goldberg reached out to friends looking for something to do to celebrate the holiday. She specifically asked if anyone knew of any parties that did not involve drugs or alcohol because she didn't want to be tempted. She left that morning. Her father hadn't heard anything from her all day, and at first he wasn't really that worried. He thought she'd called up some girlfriends because she'd recently reconnected with old friends from high school, and maybe she was spending the day hanging out with them or shopping, or maybe she even met up with a guy. 
Elaine called her father after a day or so. She told him she was crashing with friends, she was fine, and she'd eventually be home. So there really wasn't much he could do but wait. He and Elaine's sister, Corrine, just waited. They waited until they became unsettled. On November 2nd, Elaine's father, Joe Goldberg, began walking the neighborhood. He told the Philadelphia Inquirer he went out looking for her, and then he started calling her friends to find out if they'd seen her in the last few days. The next day on November 3rd, the police showed up at the Goldberg residence to let Joe know they'd found his daughter, Elaine. She'd been strangled and raped. Elaine Goldberg was left naked from the waist down, and it appeared as if her body had been positioned. As horrible as this sounds, the positioning of her body was probably the only reason her death was investigated as more than an overdose, because of where she was found and her history with drug addiction. Joe Goldberg and Elaine's little sister, Corrine, didn't know when or why Elaine wound up in Kensington sometime around Halloween in 2010. She'd been so excited about going back to nursing school, and she was really proud of herself for the work she'd put in to get clean. But those situations aren't a one and done. It's not common that the first time someone kicks heroin, they never go back to it. A recent study released from the National Institute of Drug Abuse stated that over 2% of all adults over the age of 26 have tried heroin. And in a 2010 study of relapse rates after inpatient treatment for opioid addiction, doctors followed 109 patients who'd recently completed treatment. 91% suffered a relapse. And over half of those patients relapsed within one week of release from a treatment program. Relapse rates were higher among young adults and patients who'd used needles. The few patients who'd not yet suffered a relapse or a significantly delayed relapse also entered aftercare treatment once leaving an inpatient program. Elaine Goldberg hadn't been clean very long. She was young, and the Kensington drug corners were a short ride from where she lived just outside the city. But Elaine didn't die from an overdose. She was found in a section of Philly that is overrun with addicts and dealers, frequented by sex workers, and that's what the media jumped on. Initially, all of that was bigger than her murder, until another woman was found just a few weeks later, strangled, raped, naked from the waist down, in another vacant lot filled with shit and trash just a few blocks from where Elaine Goldberg was found. Less than two weeks after Elaine Goldberg's murder, Another victim was found behind an abandoned row house near Cumberland and Jasper Streets. That's about 10 blocks away from the vacant lot where Elaine was left to die. The second victim was a 35-year-old woman named Nicole Piacentini. Nicole had four children. She lived not far from Kensington in the Port Richmond section of Philadelphia, and she regularly ventured to Kensington because of a problem with drugs. Unlike all the articles about Elaine Goldberg in Philadelphia newspapers, there was very little shared about Nicole other than charges for prostitution and possession a few years before her murder. But I found a Facebook page dedicated to the memory of Nicole Piacentini. Most of the posts were by her mother, and there hadn't been anything posted since 2016. There are photographs of Nicole. She's got short, sassy black hair. There's pictures of her holding a baby, who I imagine might be one of her children. There's family photographs of her when she was much younger. She was a beautiful woman with a very knowing smile, and she struggled. Nicole Piacentini was found in the doorway at the back of an abandoned building. 
The lot behind the building was smaller than the one where Elaine Goldberg was found, but it was very similar. Like many forgotten places in Kensington, it was filled with needles and trash, bodily waste, condoms. It was filled with horror. It's no place for anyone to die. Nicole was also naked from the waist down, and like Elaine, her hips were propped up. Their deaths were so similar. Strangulation, rape, exposed, left outside. But two days later, Philadelphia Lieutenant Ray Evers said there was no indication the killings were connected. There wasn't yet any direct evidence tying the two murders together. He said there were similarities, but that could have been a coincidence. But it wasn't. The manners of death were the same. The positioning of the bodies were very similar. The conditions where the victims were found was the same, albeit blocks away from one another. The medical examiner was able to recover DNA from both women, which was sent to the state police for testing. Fortunately, Philadelphia's homicide captain James Clark established a task force with officers from the city's special victims unit from vice, narcotics, and patrol. Homicide investigators on the task force hoped the DNA results would identify the murderer as someone with a record, someone who'd probably committed crimes before, maybe possession of drugs because of the location of the murders or assault because of the nature of the crimes. It took about 10 days for the initial DNA results, and the news wasn't good. According to Pennsylvania State Police, there was no match to a convicted felon. Philly police weren't looking for an easy answer to this case. They were looking for a direction or a place to start. Without any connection to known offenders, it was up to everyone on that task force to hit the streets, shake the trees. Maybe somebody knew something or saw something. It was a matter of getting anyone to speak up. As I researched this case, there was an episode of Law & Order SVU that kept playing over and over in my mind. It's called Underbelly from 2006. Benson wasn't in this episode much. This was during the period where Stabler was partnered with Danny Beck, who was played by Connie Nielsen. So in this episode, a teenage girl is murdered and she has a dog paw tattoo. That's the only clue they've got to go on. Stabler and Danny hit a street where very young sex workers spend most of their time and the girls start to scatter. They don't want to talk. They don't want to get busted. And Danny explains she's SVU. They're not vice. They're not looking to arrest anyone. They just need help. That is so similar to what happened along the Kensington Avenue stroll in November and December back in 2010. SVU detectives worked the stroll. They knew sex workers were frequent victims of sexual assault, and most of it went unreported. The women in Kensington were scared. Everyone was scared, but especially the sex workers. So they were a little more open with police, talking about what they'd seen or what they'd heard. And some of them talked to police about what happened to them. On November 17th, just a few days after Nicole Piacentini's body was found, an anonymous woman came forward and told police she was attacked behind an abandoned building. A young man approached her in early October. They talked for a bit, although the woman wouldn't tell police about their conversation or why they went to an abandoned building. But they wound up at a spot on Cumberland Street, not far from the same abandoned house where Nicole's body was found. This man choked her until she passed out. Then he sexually assaulted her. She believed he thought he killed her. The woman gave police a description of her attacker. He was a young African-American or Latino man, probably in his 20s, maybe very early 30s. He was less than six feet tall. He wore a hoodie. He had an iPod. That wasn't much to go on. That description could have been one of thousands of guys walking the streets in Philadelphia. 
He could have been an addict or a dealer from the corner down the street. Or he could have been a college kid walking to class at Temple. He could have been a father dropping his kids off at daycare because, sadly, homes and schools, businesses, families surround these abandoned buildings and drug corners. The man that assaulted this woman in early October could have been absolutely anyone. The woman worked with a sketch artist who gave police a composite they could share on the news and on papers all over Kensington. The young man in the sketch had a tiny patch of beard on his chin. He had long, close-cropped sideburns, but they were the only real identifiable features about him other than being a young, medium-to-dark-skinned man. As for the victims, all three were white. They were between their 20s and 30s, and they struggled with drug addiction. Two were murdered. One survived. The attacks occurred within a three-week span. If each of these attacks were connected, there seemed to be very little cooling-off period. Then a fourth victim came forward. On November 20th, a second anonymous woman told the police she was attacked on Halloween. The only reason she came forward is because the sketch of the suspect looked like the man who attacked her. And it was the same story again. A young, darker-skinned man approached her. They walked off to a vacant area near Sargent Street and Kensington Avenue, just a few blocks from where Nicole's body was found. This woman claimed the man choked her until she passed out. And like the woman attacked in early October, when she awoke, she had signs of sexual assault. She didn't report the attack when it happened because she didn't think anybody would care. These sorts of things happen to sex workers in Kensington all the time. Women working the stroll suffered attacks, rapes, robberies, and beatings. Addicts died on Kensington Avenue all the time. Residents walked over bodies, not sure if someone was dead or unconscious or high. These events seemed like nothing new. So why would anyone bother to risk arrest if the police thought she was a sex worker or buying drugs when all she wanted to do was talk about being assaulted? A few days later, there was a major break in the case. Although initial DNA results indicated the suspect wasn't in the system, further testing revealed the DNA from Elaine Goldberg and Nicole Piacentini's murders were a match. They'd been murdered by the same man. Philadelphia Homicide Captain James Clark said the department was now reviewing other cases, older cases, looking for anything with a similar signature in the event this man was responsible for more deaths than the two murders in November 2010. His DNA was also entered into CODIS. Could this man be guilty of crimes in other cities or other states? A fifth attack that was possibly connected to the Kensington Strangler occurred early in the morning of December 6th in 2010, a little after two in the morning. This attack was practically in the same spot where another attack occurred in October. A black or Hispanic man pulled a young woman into a vacant lot. He punched her. He began choking her and she fought back. So he hit her with a nearby brick, a fucking brick. This young woman walked the streets of Kensington with a pair of scissors in her coat pocket for protection. She managed to get the scissors out of her coat, and she fought back even harder. Her attacker fled, and she went to the police. They were able to pull videos from surveillance cameras in the area, and in a grainy black-and-white video was the image of a young man wearing a hoodie with long sideburns, the appearance of a little facial hair on his chin, walking past the area where this young woman was attacked. Police released the video footage, but honestly... Looking at it, it was next to impossible to tell who it was in the video. 
take a good look at this video. You'll remember police released surveillance video last week. This is additional surveillance video of a man about 45 minutes before they suspect he attacked a woman around 2 o'clock in the morning, dragging her into an alley near the 1600 block of East Sargent. Police say the woman was choked, hit in the head with a brick, and the man brandished a pair of scissors before he took off. Now, at this point, police are describing him as a black male in his early 20s, weighing 170 pounds, about 5'7". They say that he told the woman his name was Anthony. They want you to pay particularly close attention to the way he moves, his gait, his walk. They also say that in his hand he was carrying an iPod. They believe that someone out there knows who this is, and they're looking for any tips on this man. The task force continued working the street. They followed up on hundreds of leads because that sketch matched so many men in the city. Small goatee, hoodie, African-American, Hispanic, less than six feet tall. They couldn't stop and swab every man on the street, but they stopped as many as they could, even some that they shouldn't have stopped. They held on-the-street interviews and police handed out business cards. So if you got questioned and cleared today, you could show another officer the card from the first officer who questioned you because you were bound to get questioned again. The police presence in Kensington, especially in the blocks around the stroll where the murders occurred, was overwhelming. We're doing everything that we possibly can, but it's going to call. It's going to come down to a tip from the public. I really do believe that's going to make the difference in this case. We will catch this guy, but we need to catch him before he can hurt anybody else. Officials are warning the community to be on the lookout for suspicious activity. In the meantime, a task force has been set up to try to catch them. Then there's kind of a ridiculous story of one gentleman in particular who willingly offered his DNA to a police officer. After he was cleared, he approached a woman that he thought was a sex worker, but really it was an undercover female cop. So he walked up to her all confident and sweet and said, look, I'm safe. I'm not the strangler. And he held out a piece of paper. The undercover officer asked him, what's that? And according to her, this guy replied, it's my paperwork. I've been swabbed. I'm all good, baby. Only in Philadelphia would a John use the fact his DNA wasn't a match for a serial killer to get a date. Police found a third body on December 15th. 27-year-old Casey Mahoney from East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, was found strangled, raped, left naked from the waist down with her hips posed in a trash-filled vacant lot about eight blocks north of Kensington Avenue. This section of the city is sort of Kensington's sort of Fairhill. I know it sounds strange, You'd never realize you're in a different neighborhood of Philadelphia as you drive those few blocks. But it was far enough away from the neighborhood where the other murders occurred for the police to believe the Kensington Strangler intentionally left Casey Mahoney's body further away from the stroll. According to the Philadelphia Daily News, police approached Casey Mahoney just a few weeks before her death, but she probably didn't know it. An undercover police officer posing as a sex worker struck up a conversation with a few young women on the stroll. One woman told the undercover officer she'd been on a date, which isn't a date like let's go out and watch a movie and grab a drink date. It was a walking date with the Kensington Strangler before she was attacked. She claimed she was one of the survivors who gave a description to the police. And with her was Casey Mahoney. Casey didn't say anything to the undercover officer. She was just there on the periphery of the conversation. The woman talking to the undercover officer said most girls weren't dating black or Hispanic men between the ages of 20 and 50 until after the strangler was caught. They felt like that was all they could do to keep themselves safe while they continued working. 
But no sooner had she said that than Casey Mahoney hopped in a car with someone who could have easily matched the description of the Kensington Strangler. I don't understand why Casey was in Kensington in December. Less than two weeks before she was murdered, Casey Mahoney called one of her best friends from back home in East Stroudsburg, which is about two hours north of Philadelphia. Casey said she didn't want to be on the street anymore, and her friend sent her a bus ticket to get the hell out of Kensington. She said that she owed me her life because she was going to get killed down there. She told me she had been raped, she had been beaten. Her body was covered with bruises. She was scared. Casey Mahoney returned to upstate Pennsylvania and went into a detox program. When she was finished, she expected to enter rehab. According to her family and friends, Casey Mahoney struggled with drug addiction since she was young. But how young was she when her addiction started? Because she was only 27 when she was murdered. It may have started in her teens when her grandparents, who raised her in North Carolina, passed away. She had no other family to step in, and she wound up moving to upstate Pennsylvania by the time she was 21. Casey had a three-year-old son. At the time of her death, he'd been living with his father and his paternal grandmother in East Stroudsburg. Even her son's grandmother talked about Casey with kindness, calling her a sweet person and a good person. In a quote in the Philadelphia Daily News, she said it just seemed like everything always went wrong for Casey. So here we are, early December 2010, and there have been three murders in just about a month. All three women were strangled. All three were raped and found naked from the waist down. The women were between the ages of 21 and 35, all white, all struggling with drug addiction, and risking their lives in one of the most crime-ridden neighborhoods in North Philadelphia. Maybe the murderer didn't think anyone would connect the dots. Maybe he thought the city would look at them as less than human because of their struggles and not care about what happened to them. All three women were left out in the elements within blocks from one another, either in vacant lots or a vacant property, and all three had been posed. Nicole Piacentini and Casey Mahoney's positioning was almost identical. On December 22nd, DNA results proved what we already suspected. The DNA recovered from Casey Mahoney matched the DNA from both Elaine Goldberg and Nicole Piacentini. Finally, Philadelphia police admitted a serial murderer was prying on women leading high-risk lifestyles on the streets of Kensington. Philadelphia Mayor Nutter announced the reward of $3,000 for information leading to the arrest of the Kensington Strangler had been increased to $37,000 through contributions from the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge No. 5, Councilman Frank DeChico, the City of Philadelphia, and the Citizens' Crime Commission. And on Sunday, December 23rd, two days before Christmas, the Guardian Angels descended on Kensington. Last night we told you about Kensington residents meeting to vent over crime in their neighborhood and particularly the strangler who has killed three women and is a suspect in three more attacks. Tonight they and police have some extra help in the form of the Guardian Angels. And Action News reporter John Rollins says residents want all the help they can get. I mean, with them coming back in, I really think that... Uh it can make a difference. So we're afraid of walking by ourselves, and, and I feel more safe. Reaction today in Kensington to the arrival of the Guardian Angels. In their red berets, the unarmed citizen volunteers handed out flyers about the Kensington Strangler and offered to provide escorts. They say they're here to see and to be seen, and in some cases, to just listen. 
Who knows? Maybe that one unlikely person who wouldn't talk to a cop talks to a guardian angel. We backed all the information and boom, slammed and jammed, bagged and tagged. The person is put out of business. That would be welcome news. People here are on edge. We really need to get this guy off the street. He is very dangerous. He's a coward. He's a punk. Police say this is a person of interest linked to multiple attacks, including several fatals. Those who have been targeted have been involved in either drugs and or prostitution. This young woman says her addiction and what she does to pay for it puts her at high risk along Kensington Avenue. One of her close friends is among the dead. I will do anything in my power to get this guy, to help police get this guy. This is crazy. Living in fear like this is crazy. It's bad enough we have to live with daily fears than to, to have to live with this psycho running around. Like, we're just trying to live. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Guardian Angels, it's a volunteer group of anti-crime activists. Some members are retired police officers. Some are just concerned citizens who aren't afraid to patrol the streets. And they're easily identifiable. They wear red berets and red jackets. During the end of December and into January, angels from Philadelphia and New York patrolled the streets of Kensington. They handed out flyers with the sketch of the strangler, talked to residents. They helped people feel safer. Their presence in Kensington was called a visual deterrent by the founder of the Guardian Angels. Christmas came and went. Macy's ran their light show. People skated at Dilworth Park, parts of the city far removed from Kensington, celebrated with glittering red and green, as always, while the Goldberg, Piacentini, and Mahoney families mourned the losses of Elaine, Nicole, and Casey. The residents of Kensington still looked over their shoulders. The women walking the stroll risked their lives with every step they took. With every walking date, they feared the worst. New Year's passed, the calendar rolled over to 2011. People popped champagne and watched fireworks in other parts of the city, and still no word on the Kensington Strangler. As you know, people in Philly aren't afraid of a little vigilante justice. Is Ramsey concerned at all that people might act out on their own here? Well, I think what he's concerned about is that people might see these two sketches, see someone they think looks like it, and take action on their own. He says, if you see someone who looks like the sketch, call police immediately. This guy is really sick, and I've got something to tell you. If the police don't get you, the town watch will get you, and the neighborhood will get you. I will grab you and put you down on the ground and hold you for police. We just need to get him. However he goes, he's got to go. It wasn't for a lack of effort between homicide, special victims, patrol, and offers of assistance from other states. The city did everything it could to find this guy. But there was a snag no one knew about that could have identified him right after the murder of Elaine Goldberg. In 2008, a home health care worker named Simone Tinsley met a young man named Antonio Rodriguez. Simone had relocated to Fort Wayne, Indiana. She was looking for a new place and a new life after some devastating personal experiences. She quickly made friends in the neighborhood where she lived with her aunt, and one of those friends was 20-year-old Antonio Rodriguez, or Anthony, as she called him. Rodriguez was handsome, he was friendly and outgoing, and according to Simone Tinsley, he was always smiling, which never ceased to amaze her because, according to Simone, Anthony's life was filled with struggles. 
Some people might ask, what did he have to smile about? But he didn't seem to let his circumstances faze him, which included having very little to his name. Anthony and Simone shared a bond because they were both strangers in Fort Wayne. Each of them searched for something they didn't have in their lives, someone to make them feel secure and connected. Eventually, their friendship grew into a romantic relationship. The more time Simone spent with Anthony Rodriguez, the more she learned about his past. He and his twin brother were born in New Jersey, and they were orphaned as infants. They were adopted by their foster parents, the Rodriguez family in North Philadelphia, when they were about five years old. Anthony and his brother were well cared for by their adoptive parents who provided them with a loving home. But Rodriguez never seemed to adjust. As a teenager, he struggled in school. By the time he was 19, he left Philadelphia. I guess he thought he could make a better life for himself on his own. Although when he and Simone met, he was technically homeless, crashing at a friend's house in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Simone Tinsley and Anthony Rodriguez had what seemed to me to be a real relationship. They loved one another, they seemed happy together, they cared for each other, and they looked out for each other. In May 2008, there was a rapist prowling the streets of Fort Wayne, not far from where the couple lived and where Simone worked. Anthony was so protective of Simone, he wouldn't let her walk home from work alone. He was afraid it was unsafe. He said, why would I wait on the porch for you when I could walk around this corner and just meet you and make sure you get home safe? I mean, that's the type of character he was. I didn't have to ask for that. This is what's going on in the neighborhood. That ain't cool. They're coming after women. I ain't letting them get you. How is this the same man who, when he returned to Philadelphia, prowled the streets of Kensington, hunting for women he could lure into desolate, unlit spots in the city under the guise of a walking date and rape them after strangling them until their lifeless bodies could no longer put up a fight? It doesn't seem that these two descriptions are of the same man, but they are. What brought Anthony Rodriguez back to Philadelphia? Trouble, that's what. In Fort Wayne, he spent the last few months of 2008 hiding out from drug dealers. He robbed the neighbor's house next to Simone Tinsley and her aunt, and he screwed over local dealers. Pissed off people regularly showed up at Simone's house looking for Rodriguez. And in some cases, these people weren't just pissed off. They wanted to kill him. Anthony Rodriguez had to get the hell out of Fort Wayne, so in 2009, he told Simone he was heading back to Philly. Although his mother recently passed away, his father still lived in North Philly, and he felt sure they would help him get back on his feet and get a job. The plan was, once Rodriguez got settled in Philly, got a job, saved up some money so he could get a place for him and Simone, Simone Tinsley would join him in Philadelphia. And the plan was bullshit. Anthony Rodriguez fed Simone a line for over a year, week after week. Oh, baby, I'm going to send for you. I'm going to send you money. I'm going to send you a bus ticket. And he never sent her shit except lies, including not telling her he'd been in jail for a few months for a drug bust in August 2010. And that drug bust is what eventually led police to identifying Antonio Anthony Rodriguez as the Kensington Strangler. On Sunday morning, January 16, 2011, the Combined DNA Index System, CODIS, got a hit on DNA connected to the Kensington Strangler case. An administrator from CODIS contacted the state police. They ran further tests, and eventually the DNA was connected to the name Antonio Rodriguez. Rodriguez spent two months in a Philadelphia jail over the summer of 2010 for possession. He was released on August 9th, and a warrant was issued for his arrest in October for a probation violation, another drug charge, weeks before he murdered Elaine Goldberg. 
Rodriguez's DNA was sent to the state police lab, and according to court records, the state police received the sample on October 25, 2010. But his DNA didn't get entered into the state database until January 10, 2011, when Philadelphia PD requested the first DNA test to see if Elaine Goldberg's killer was in the system for prior convictions, the reason the state didn't get a hit is because they hadn't yet processed Rodriguez's DNA. It sat dormant, caught up in a bottleneck at the state laboratory. Pennsylvania State Police had his DNA nine days before Elaine Goldberg was murdered. Processing Antonia Rodriguez's DNA in a timely manner wouldn't have prevented her murder but it could have prevented Nicole Piacentini's murder 10 days later and Casey Mahoney's murder in early December. And I hate thinking that way. It chills me to think Nicole and Casey's lives could have been spared. Maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe the Kensington Stroll would have claimed their lives on another day, but I believe they did not have to die at the hands of Antonio Rodriguez. Philadelphia police held a press conference after confirming the DNA match, and in less than an hour, tips poured in. One tip proved to be accurate. Antonio Rodriguez was picked up at a house on Mutter Street for the October 20th probation violation, just a few blocks from the stroll. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't make a fuss. He didn't deny what he'd done. In fact, that night, he confessed to murdering Elaine Goldberg, Nicole Piacentini, and Casey Mahoney. The night of his arrest, Philadelphia police swabbed Rodriguez and ran even more tests to confirm his DNA matched the samples taken from each victim, and it did. On Wednesday, January 19, 2011, charges were filed against Antonio Rodriguez. Three counts of murder, rape, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and abuse of a corpse because the sexual assaults occurred after the women had been strangled. Antonio Rodriguez had no history of assault. Yeah, there was the break-in at his neighbor's home in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but most of his run-ins with the law were because of drug charges. Neither his girlfriend in Indiana nor his girlfriend in Philly ever experienced violence in their relationships with him. So why did he do this? Why did he all of a sudden escalate to assault and rape and murder? Rodriguez told police he had sexual fantasies that involved rough sex. He dreamt of choking a woman and having sex with her while she was unconscious. He claimed he didn't intend to kill anyone. He only wanted to live out his fantasies. Antonio Rodriguez also told police after the death of Casey Mahoney he wanted to stop because he didn't want anyone else to die. Police claimed that he was mild-mannered and soft-spoken during their interviews, which seemed such a contradiction to what they expected considering how he murdered his victims. One very strange twist of fate is that Antonio Rodriguez and Dr. Kermit Gosnell were arraigned not only on the same day, back on January 20th in 2011, but almost at the same time. And they were both scheduled to next appear in court on the same day on February 9th. It is so fucking creepy. The doctor who let a woman die because of a botched abortion and delivered viable babies long past the state-regulated abortion guidelines but murdered them after delivery, and the Kensington Strangler sitting next to each other while they awaited arraignment. Both of these men preyed on weak and desperate women in two of the most underserved communities in Philadelphia. There's a theme 
that repeats itself over and over. Some of the most notorious and heinous crimes against our citizens, especially women in Philadelphia, are perpetrated against those who are in dire situations with very little choice but to take risks that put them in jeopardy. During the preliminary hearing on February 9th in 2011, Philadelphia detectives shared Anthony Rodriguez's confession in court. The details of what happened during those attacks are so disturbing. I am not going to include them here because, to be honest, I couldn't finish reading the courtroom testimony. Philadelphia District Attorney's Office stated they would pursue the death penalty, but ultimately, Antonio Rodriguez was sentenced to life in prison. On Friday, August 17th in 2012, after four days of testimony, a Pennsylvania Common Pleas Court judge found Rodriguez guilty on all charges and sentenced him to three consecutive life sentences. There's another name associated with this case that doesn't get mentioned much, Noel Quintana. On November 28th in 2010, a woman was assaulted in another section of the city not far from Kensington. She claimed a man came up behind her with a box cutter, threatened to kill her, put her in a chokehold, and then attempted to rape her. Quintana happened to be walking nearby not long after the assault, and he was stopped by police, questioned, and then released to continue on his way. But a few days later, on December 1st, Noel Quintana was arrested in connection with the murders of Elaine Goldberg and Nicole Piacentini, victims of the Kensington Strangler and the attempted rape of a woman on November 28th. He remained in jail even after the third victim was killed on December 6th, and he remained in jail after the arrest of Antonio Rodriguez. Noel Quintana was still in jail after Antonio Rodriguez was convicted and sentenced. By that time, police knew he wasn't the Kensington Strangler. Hell, they knew it on December 6th after Casey Mahoney's murder. He didn't even look like the composite sketch of Rodriguez. But they didn't release Quintana. They charged him with attempted rape, even though he wasn't identified by any witnesses and there was no DNA. Finally, on September 30th in 2014, Noel Quintana was found not guilty of these bogus charges and released. A year ago, he filed a lawsuit against the city of Philadelphia, the police department, the DA and attorney general's office, and a number of other city and state officials for wrongful arrest and imprisonment and violation of his civil rights. This isn't the only lawsuit against the city in relation to the Kensington Strangler case. All those police officers all over Kensington during November and December in 2010 stopped anyone who even remotely looked like the sketch of the suspect, which, as I've already said, could have looked like hundreds of men in Philly who have dark skin, wear hoodies, have a goatee, because that sketch didn't look like anyone, so it could have looked like everyone. Between 2015 and 2016, the city of Philadelphia paid out over $1 million in damages to people who sued the city for false arrest and false imprisonment related to the Kensington Strangler case. Many of the vacant lots that were cleaned up over the winter of 2010 and 2011 have since overgrown again, filled with trash, bodily waste, and drug paraphernalia. There was an initiative in the city called the Community Land Care Program, which had cleaned up over 2,500 sites across Philadelphia since 2003. But by 2010, the program lost funding, and many of the lots they'd cleaned up went to shit again. Kensington lost about $70,000 a year earmarked to clean up vacant lots filled with trash and put up fences to keep people out who used the lots for drugs and sex. Close to 70 lots were cleared in December 2010, and after the mayhem of the Kensington Strangler died down, the city returned to normal. 
in some cases and in some sections of the city, normal meant despair. The police presence dwindled, the guardian angels flew home, and we had another Kensington Strangler in the summer of 2016. A man assaulted sex workers along the Kensington Avenue stroll. Some of the assaults happened on the very same streets where women were attacked by Antonio Rodriguez six years earlier. But this time, local headlines called these women prostitutes instead of hookers. I guess that's a little better. And the story of the second Kensington Strangler is a story for another day. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. <laughs>